Welcome to Record Store Society, a production of iHeartRadio. Music.com because they choose a lot for like the new releases. They'll feature like a couple jazz albums and a couple classical albums, experimental, mm-hmm. just lots of different um, genres. So it's instead of just like what's cool, like Pitchfork right. or, you know, Spotify just puts, I think, what they get paid the most to put on the top of the right. release pages. So, yeah. I, I like allmusic.com for that. Nice. Uh, oh, hey, hi. Uh, welcome to our record store. I'm Seth, and this is Tara. Uh, feel free to look around and just give us a shout if you need anything. Uh, today's another one of our special days. We are doing the Album of the Month Club, and uh, it's kind of like our book club we do around here, where um, everyone who's involved, usually just me and Tara, we each bring uh, an album to the table, and we go, hey, This month, this is what we're going to talk about. We uh, exchange, we listen, and then we come back ready to talk about uh, uh, everyone who's involved, everyone's albums that they brought. Let's see. Today, we are doing Betty Davis, her self-titled album from 1973, and we are doing Duality by Captain Murphy, a.k.a. Flying Lotus, which, of course, we'll have to talk about that a.k.a. quite a bit during that moment. Uh, But yeah, let's start off, Tara, with you talking about your choice this month, which was Betty Davis by Betty Davis from 1973. Uh, tell us all about it. Yeah, I I uh, chose this album because, um, well, of all my, my album of the month choices, I feel like I'm choosing rather extraordinary artists that kind of fly under the radar, mm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Freddie Johnston, Mary, uh, Mary Catherine, uh, uh, Oh gosh, just drew a blank on her last name. O'Hara. Mark, uh, yeah, Mary Margaret O'Hara. Mm-hmm. Um, and Betty Davis, she she's phenomenal name in rock and funk and blues, especially being a woman and doing all of those things. Uh, and I just, you know, I I wish more people would be talking about her. So I thought she'd be a good one to to talk about yeah. today with you. I mean, I, I can say, at least from my own personal experience, uh, well, first of all, yet again, I have to say that this album, uh, you know, we, we never attempt to pick albums that the other person has never heard. But I think we did it again, didn't we? Have you ever heard yeah. Duality before? I heard the one song from uh, Adult Swim. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so yeah, so once again, we have chosen albums that the other person has not heard entirely just by happenstance, which is fun. I, I don't. I mean, we've done this probably like, you know, four months in a row or whatever. We've done the, like this four times. We've mm-hmm. never picked albums that the other person has heard before. And that's just what great luck that is, you know? Yeah, and I think we've done again uh, where the albums kind of somehow go together. They actually, do. I, I agree. And actually, I have, a a really, way. I have a reason for that later, but I'll get into that oh, later. okay. But, um, but yeah. anyway, but when it comes to Betty Davis kind of being under the radar, I think a really good example of that is, um, so my system for whenever um, you tell me what the album is going to be is uh, the first time through, I just listen to it straight, just the album, just the audio. I don't look up any information. I don't take any notes. I just 
listen to it like an album. And then the second time I go through, I, and this is, it could be maybe the next day, it could be maybe later on, who knows. Um, I will do like a little bit of research while I'm listening. So I'll look up some Wikipedia stuff, read some articles, and, and I'll actually like take down notes while I'm listening if something stands out to me, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, on that second listen, when I was actually like Googling Betty Davis and this album, this self-titled album, Every time I Googled it, they had to be like, do you mean Betty Davis? As in like the actor, the one from like that, she's got Betty Davis eyes, like that song. (laughs) I don't know anything about that oldie timey actor, Betty Davis, but they kept trying to like, kind of like force my Google towards the old actor, Betty Davis, instead of this Betty Davis. And I had to keep telling Google, no, 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 I didn't misspell the actor's name. I'm talking about the funk Betty Davis, please keep yeah. showing me those results, you know? And it's interesting because even beyond that, it's like the next thing that people always know her from is, oh, she used to be married to Miles Davis. It's like she's yeah. already taken a backseat to some man who did have an extraordinary music career, but she definitely impacted the progression of his uh, of his music in a big way. And you can, you can tell if you really line up the timeline. Oh, yeah. Um, But I, you know, apparently Shaka Khan is the queen of funk, but I feel like Betty Davis, to me, more exemplifies like a queen of funk. Um, Yeah. And, uh, And not only that, but I feel like when you listen to Betty Davis, you can hear the modern day contemporaries that have been inspired by her. Oh, sure. Just by hearing her. Um, Lenny Kravitz. When I listen to Lenny Kravitz, it's like I can't listen to him and not think of Betty Davis. Right. They are so similar in a way. Um, Janelle Monet, uh, Prince, even Rick James, all these people were highly influenced by Betty Davis. So there was this part yeah. in um, this is just in my Googling around. Um, I came across a part where Miles Davis in his autobiography was talking about um, talking about his ex-wife, Betty Davis. And um, he was like, oh, I wish she would have like kept making music. If she was making music today, she would be Madonna. She would be Prince. Like, that's who she would oh, be. That and was Santana that said that. Yeah. Santana said that? Wow. Santana said that. Yeah. How um, is it that I, think I thought I was reading about Miles Davis saying that? So that's funny. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was like, she was the first Madonna, but Madonna's more like Marie Osmond when it comes to when it, when you actually compare to Betty Davis, because she was a real ferocious Black Panther woman. You couldn't tame Betty Davis. Santana said that. Oh, see, now that's funny. That's not the quote I saw. So oh. maybe what I did see was from Miles Davis and she's just been cared, been compared to Madonna multiple times by multiple of her peers. So that's pretty funny. I mean, yeah, I do think... So I think one of the reasons why she didn't really just explode was because a lot of her lyrics were very risque. Right. Which I think Madonna tends to do. She likes to push buttons to make a statement. And she does a really good job of it and makes you kind of question sort of ideals and and things that you've grown up with that maybe you you need to be questioning maybe you know yeah. um a lot of uh her lyrics are kind of reversing gender roles and expectations which also I think Madonna does a mm-hmm. lot she talks about she kind of sings about sex on her own terms which 
So does Madonna. So I, I can definitely see that comparison for sure. But I, yeah. I wonder though, um, having not been alive in 1973, in my mind, the impression I get is that if you were not radio friendly in the 70s, that was just the kiss of death for your career. It meant you were going to get zero exposure and you were never going to go anywhere. Whereas in the 1980s, there were other outlets, namely MTV, you know, Mm -hmm. where where you didn't have to just appeal to the Walmart radio market you could appeal to these other markets that in many ways were much bigger and much, much more influential and much more interested in a wider variety of artists who were going to be more risque Mm -hmm. and push boundaries and be something brand new like Prince and Madonna was. So, um, so yeah, I wonder if maybe she was just ahead of her time and, you know, she didn't get enough um, traction just because she wasn't homogenous enough to be on the radio and clean enough to be on the radio. But, um, yeah, 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 I agree. And so just as an example, um, the first track on this album, this is the self-titled album, album, Betty Davis from 1973. The first song is if I'm in luck, I might get picked up. And the lyrics, uh, in particular that I think are kind of risque are, I said, if I'm in luck, I might just get picked up. I said, I'm fishing trick and you can call it what you want then. I said, I'm wiggling my fanny. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just think that's interesting. Another, I mean, not, it's it's interesting because to us, like now we have WAP and things that are just right. like so beyond risque. Um, so for that, for her to be like, I'm fishing trick, like I'm wiggling my fanny to be considered risque. It's kind of funny. Um there's another, there's a couple other songs that are maybe a little bit more risque than that one, that being her first kind of studio album. Mm-hmm. But on another album that she's, which by the way, she's written all of the songs she's ever recorded and she produced every album after this one. This is her first. So every album after her first, she produced. Um, and that's a big deal for a woman in the late 60s, 70s to be producing their own albums like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, puts her in rare, rare company. Uh, I don't know any other woman that was doing that at that time, to be honest. I, no. Uh, I'm sure there may be one or two, but... But uh, but especially to have like um, a full authorship, because think about someone from like the yeah. 60s or 70s, like, oh, I don't know, Bette Midler or something, or Barbara Streisand. They still had other songwriters that worked with them. They still had other oh, producers, yeah. you know? And that's cool too, but it just seems like Betty Davis was doing so much more. Also, her discography is um, sadly kind of small. Like, um, it's yeah. only four albums. And the fourth one, I found out, she made it in 1976, but it didn't get released until 2009. From Light in the Attic Records? Yeah, Light in the one? Attic apparently yeah. did a re-release of her first three albums. And then they they released for the first time her fourth album, which was just sitting on a shelf from 1976 up until 2009. So that's pretty wild. Yeah. I want to go back to that after I say these lyrics. I think they're hilarious. Oh, sure. Um, From the album Nasty Gal, there's a song called Nasty Gal. You said I love you every way, but your way and my way was too dirty for you. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was a song called He Was a Big Freak. I used to whip him. I used to beat him. Oh, he used to dig it. <laughs> so, oh, and we don't know who that is, but um, I don't know. I just think that's pretty interesting, kind of reversing those gender roles and yeah. being kind of a, a, a wild lady for the times. For sure. <laughs> but 
going back to what you said about um, having that album that was totally shelved and then released in the 2000s, she also did an album with Miles Davis that he was producing, but it got shelved Mm. and she thought nothing of it. You know, she was like, what it means is like, it's not the time. If it ends there, it ends there. And, but you know, her career didn't end there, kept going. But with that album, she didn't push that any further because she didn't know if it was influenced by him being who he was, um, with his record label. And she didn't want it to be like that. You know, she wanted to be about her her music, her art, yeah, which I think is really cool. Um, Do you know when she made that one with Miles Davis? Was that back when they were married? That was in 1968. That was like right when they were getting married. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so, so that would have, that would have predated yeah. her solo career then. So that's really cool. Wow. Yeah. And so, and it seems like he was maybe threatened by her talent a little bit. So maybe he was yeah. blocking the release of that a little bit too. I, I saw a little bit while I was, you know, Googling around while listening to this and it was interesting. So yeah, they were, um, she was his second wife and they were only married for about a year in 1968 And when they got divorced, he claimed it was because she was having an affair with Jimi Hendrix. And then she claimed, no, I'm not. He's just an asshole. (laughs) And it's like, oh, all right. All right. Like, you know, I mean, obviously, I don't know either of you. I can't tear apart like your relationship and see what the truth is. I mean, we can't, but we can because he's been married many times and all the women say he had a, and all of his bandmates said he had a wild temper. Yeah. He had a violent temper. Based on that, we can definitely take that part to be true. He was just an asshole. (laughs) Yeah. But, um. I also read that she was friends with Jimi Hendrix's girlfriend, but never actually met him in person, but was oh. uh, the person that connected Jimmy with Miles. That's what I heard who, too, yeah. Yeah, who then went on, of course, worked with him on the um, Le Field de Kilimanjaro or something like that, which is the album, her face is on the cover of the album. Right. But then uh, even with Bitches Brew is um, sort of like... Uh, maybe a beginning point of jazz fusion. So she, she had a big, she played a, uh, a big hand in, in that. Yeah. Like, like not, not just in Miles Davis's career, but in the trajectory of jazz in the world, she played an enormous role and, you know, maybe the world would have gotten to jazz fusion on its own, but it happened because of Betty Davis in the timeline that we live in, (laughs) you know? Like if it wasn't for Betty Davis and her introducing this much funk and rock to her husband, Miles Davis, him being influenced by her, him being introduced to her friends, including apparently Jimi Hendrix, Mm -hmm. him creating Bitches Brew, which apparently also was uh, named in honor of... um, Betty Davis and her friends. Like, apparently he wanted to call it Witch's yeah. Brew. And then she was like, no, call it Bitch's Brew. <laughs> That's what I heard. And yeah. then, um, yeah, like, like if, if all these events hadn't happened, no matter who you are, whether you're a jazz fan or not, you know that Bitch's Brew is important. Like, that is the kickoff of a brand new era of jazz, you know? And, um, yeah, she's responsible for that. It would have happened yeah. a completely different way if she hadn't been who she was and been where she was when she was there, you know? Yeah, it's pretty wild to think about that, huh? Definitely, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, but I, f- I forgot to tell you. So, yes, this was my first time listening to this album. I loved mm. it. thought it was such a great album. Yay! Like, it's so much fun. And um, I, It rocks. Here, here's the best thing that I like about it. Um, there are a few genres in the world 
that have a tendency to be very repetitive if you're not very good at that genre. Uh, that can be, let's see, like kind of jam bands. That can mm-hmm. be um, dub style reggae. That can be funk. That can be um, electronic music, especially like some of like the more like house type stuff. Like if you, those are some genres that have a lot of repetition in them. And so if you're not good at it, your music can be kind of boring and bland because the repetition isn't like the fun trance-inducing kind of repetition. It's just repetitive and boring. The thing I love best about this, it is a funk album, so it does have a lot of like, hey, we're going to get one really great like funk groove and we're going to like repeat on it and riff on it for like, you know, five, six minutes. But her voice is so playful and expressive and she's mm-hmm. having so much fun with it. And it's... um it really guides the listener on like kind of like an emotional kind of like trajectory up and down and through this really great, you know, riff of, of, of like a funk groove. And I think that's the key to this. Like the music is great. Like just like if this was just purely instrumental, it would be fine. But her voice is so expressive and pushing so many boundaries. I, it, it really just pushes it over the, over the edge. It makes it so good. Yeah. Um, there's so many like bass lines in the album that just really like literally actually slap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Um, but it's are true. so funky, like slap in, in the figurative sense is like so cool. And um, yeah, her voice is almost an instrument. I think we, I feel like we've had, oh no, we've, there have been similar conversations in this record store about how a singer's voice almost augments the instrumentation or an instrumentation augments the singer's voice. Right, yeah. Her voice is like part of the instrumentation, I feel like, a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's so gritty and growly. So much personality for, in her voice. Yeah. yeah. For the young hip crowd, think pylon, like, screamy, singy, gritty. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah, people we've talked about in the past with similar aspects to them would be like, um, actually, when we talked about Mary Margaret O'Hara, she has that similar, like, such uh, so much personality crammed into their voice that mm-hmm. it just comes out, like, in, like, an overflowing waterfall. Um, same thing, we've talked about uh, Joanna Newsom in that way. We've talked about some of Regina Spector in that way, where it's, yeah, you, using the voice as an instrument in a unexpected way, making making noises that most singers will not make. And it's great. I really loved it. I thought, I thought this was a really great pick, and I can't wait to actually yeah. listen to more Betty Davis. And she only has four albums, so I can just, like, catch up real fast, you know? yeah. <laughs> Plus, it's always nice to just be talking about uh, women in music. I don't know. I feel like um, there needs to be more of that. Yeah. Um, we So just to highlight one other song that I, I love on this album. It's my fa- I think this song is my favorite song on this album. It's called Anti-Love Song. Uh, that's why I don't want to love you. Um, and she's so independent. We can already tell that, you know, right from the start. Plus she left home when she was 16 or something and then moved to New York. She became a model. She's, she wrote songs for, uh, I think the chamber men or something like that. I forget, uh, the name of that band, but they had a couple hits. 
And so for her to like really make it in, in New York and like do all these things. And plus she wrote songs since she was like 12 years old. Uh, yeah, we can tell she's just a very independent person, but, um, in this song she says, Cause I know you like to be in charge, but with me, you know, you couldn't control me. Don't you? Like that is a line. Like, I don't want to love you. I know you're going to do all this. I know you could have this power over me, but you also couldn't have a, a certain amount of power over me because I'm independent, but also I'm not going to love you. Um, so I'm just going to leave you be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. I mean, I mean, um, I, I hope that, well, I actually, another thing I guess we should talk about too is that um, for her first two albums, so yeah, so let's see here. So she had four albums. Betty Davis, that's the one we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. They Say I'm Different, Nasty mm -hmm. Gal, and Is It Love or Desire? Those are her four albums. Of those four albums, and we're talking about when they first came out, the first two were on a small independent label called Just Sunshine. The third one was on Island. So, you know, that's a reputable, well-distributed record label. And then the yeah. fourth one was Unreleased. So if you were just the regular person on the street trying to find some Betty Davis albums up until 2007, you were going to have a hard time doing it because Just Sunshine, obviously, you know, the majority of us have never even heard of that label. They did not have the widest distribution. They couldn't produce that much. Definitely weren't doing reissues, you know, as as time went on. Uh, so yeah, thank you, Light in the Attic, for... Um, making these commercially available again and able to uh, be obtained out there. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm curious though, how I'm, you know, we weren't alive back then. What was the power of this uh, record distribution um, for that record label? Because she did have a lot of powerful friends in the music industry. Oh, definitely. Like Jimi Hendrix, for example. And yeah, the guy that um, produced, or at least co-produced the first album with her was from like Cool in the Gang. And weren't the yeah. Pointer Sisters her backing singing group on this album? Uh, is that true? I think I that's know. true. That would be cool. So I, I read a lot of things while listening to this, and I bet a bunch of them are getting mud muddled in my mind. <laughs> but yeah, I think the Pointer Sisters sang <laughs> oh, yeah, backup yeah, yeah. on the this Pointer album. Sisters. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so yeah, I wonder like Just Sunshine, like how much, like... Yeah, And was she know. on this independent label because bigger labels wouldn't release her because they weren't ready for someone that was this upfront and this sexually, you know, um, um, candid yeah. and yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, we can only speculate because we weren't there in 73, but um, I'm, I'm glad I have it now. I'm glad I get to listen to it, you know? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and just, I want to call it one, one other thing, which I haven't. I almost forgot about, um, I feel like she kind of changes music for black women too, in a way, thinking of how this music is, is rock, is blues, is funk, but I, I'm just trying to think forward ahead and how, you know, like black women or women in heavy metal even could yeah. be influenced by something like this album. Um, I don't know. Just something to think about, I guess. Oh, hundred percent. You you can see um the ripples from Betty Davis out into the world, and um, yeah. yeah, I'd be, I'd be very curious um to talk to someone from that some someone that was alive and in their prime in the early seventies to ask them, hey, 
was Betty Davis like a big deal to you? You know what I mean? Because like, like for example, I have this friend who is an older guy. And whenever I talk about, you know, some bands I loved from his era, like the Velvet Underground or something, he always goes, no one was actually listening to the Velvet Underground back then. I know all you kids love them, <laughs> but back then we had no idea who they were. They were they were beatniks from New York. They they were not part of the conversation. And part of me goes like, ah, shut up, you old square, you know? <laughs> but like <laughs> but but that's like his real life perspective as like a guy yeah. in California in the 1970s was like the Velvet Underground were not a thing to us. That's something that you discovered later, you know? We're like, I I, I would love Probably to hear. Probably if he was in LA, then that that's his thing. Is he was listening to maybe The Doors, but if someone in New York would definitely say like the Velvet Underground or the Ramones. That's my assumption too. Yeah, I mean, but but yeah, like I said, I wasn't alive. Who knows? Yeah. But um, it would be interesting. I, I would love um, to hear if Betty Davis's um, influence was being felt and kind of if it registered back then. I, I, I hope it was. I think, I think yeah. it was. I hope. <laughs> I hope so too. So uh, I know we've mentioned this before too, the Mike Judge Presents I, series I finally thing. saw, because you've mentioned it before in the store and yeah. I never quite understood what it was, but I saw that they did one about this, right? Yeah. It's like an animated bio series or something. Right. But, but fun, kind of like more fun. Oh, also... I don't think this was included in their their like highlight of her career, but she was the lover of Robert Palmer. Wait a minute. <laughs> and she also dated Eric Clapton, which he sucks, but he does. <laughs> um, but of Robert Palmer's lover, which he's the one who helped to get onto Island Records. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Oh, oh, and in case anyone's wondering or wants to look this up, because I personally want to look this up. Um, this TV series that you've talked about in the past, it's called Mike Judge Presents Tales from the Tour Bus. I, I don't know much about it, but this is the second <laughs> time that it's come up in conversation. So I got to go check it out. This sounds really interesting. Yeah, There's a few different series or like par uh, parts. Uh, Seasons? I don't know. Like categories, they break okay. them up into categories. Like there's one about the outlaws and then there's one about like funk. Um which this is the one I think she's on, the funk one. But yeah, Mike Judge is the guy who did uh, Beefs and Butthead. He does these like animated series, Tales from the Tour Bus. Very interesting. Highly recommend. Yeah, check it out. I gotta. Yeah, that's super cool. And they're short. So if you have limited attention span like I have, <laughs> then you can tolerate it. Nice. <laughs> Looping this back to your choice, though. Oh, yes. Um, I, I also have a connection, but please, you go yeah. first. I'm just saying, like, this whole fusion, this psychedelic rock, jazz, funk, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I feel like Fly Low does that, too. Oh, 100%. Um, in addition to that, and I think this is, so yeah, transitioning into Duality by Captain Murphy, a.k.a. Flying Lotus. Illuminate the heavens, we children of the atom, too real for fucking cosigns, I do the shit without home. 
here's an odd thing about him as well. So his real name is uh, Stephen Ellison, and he is the grandnephew of Alice Coltrane. So both of our picks have tangential family of very famous jazz musicians, which is which is another odd connection that these two have. But um, I'm sure that also has to influence you if you are a musician and in your family you have not just a good musician, but one of the best. Like, I'm sure there are people who are way, way, way more versed in jazz than I am, but I love Alice Coltrane. She is one of my favorites. Like, Alice Coltrane, to me, no offense, is better than John Coltrane, you know? So, like, if you are Mm -hmm. someone and you know that, like, I'm a musician and I like making music, and you know that this person is in your family and look at what they did, it has to push you a little bit. And I think that must apply to Betty Davis, at least in some way too, is that she's so good and she knows people are going to look at her in connection with um, Miles Davis. So she better, you know, just step it up, just one more notch, you know, just just put a little extra in there. And um, so, yeah, I think that's another little connection between these two. They, they, they both and, do have a fusion yeah. vibe and they're both related to jazz greats, you know? That's not the only thing, too. Man, he's got, he's set up. He's set up because um, his grandma, so Alice Coltrane, that's his grand aunt. Yes, yeah. He's the grand nephew. His grandmother is Marilyn McLeod, who wrote a bunch of popular songs. Like, she wrote a Diana Ross song. Mm. She co-wrote a uh, Devo song with Jermaine Jackson. Um, yeah, Lung, uh, yeah, Love Hangover is the song that she wrote for Diana Ross. But his own grandmother is also very well known in the music industry. And he was an intern at uh, Stone's Throw before all this stuff, too. So It's wild. It's absolutely wild. So, yeah. um a quick catch-up if no one's heard of this uh, album from Captain Murphy. So, um, basically, Flying Lotus. If you don't know Flying Lotus, please do yourself a favor and just go go grab any of his albums. They're all so good. He's one of my favorites that I think he makes contemporary classics nearly every time he does anything. And um, mm-hmm. back in okay. the day, like you said, he was an intern for Stone's Throw. And he also... This is at least the first place I heard about him openly. Maybe others had more information than I did, but way back in the day, he used to make the interstitial music for Adult Swim. That was the first place I ever came across his music, and I absolutely loved it. And I was just like, wow, this is so good. And that led me to go find his albums. Um, and then uh, I think what really like secured him in my heart was he started collaborating with Tom York a couple of times, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> Radiohead's in the building now, so now <laughs> I'm committed. <laughs> so... Um, but yeah, Adult Swim and that that whole Los Angeles scene um, with Stone's Throw. That's kind of like his vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's where he got famous. And now here's a story that I heard that may not be true. Okay, because I, I I've never seen this again, like in like you know like in research. But this is a story I heard. 
um, he was working on stuff, Flying Lotus, and he was making like beats because mo- most of his albums, they're instrumental hip hop for the most part. He'll bring collaborators, but um, he mostly just produces and makes beats. That's his thing. Uh, so this one time he was hanging out with Earl Sweatshirt of Odd Future, Wolfgang Kill Them All. And Earl Sweatshirt <laughs> was like, oh, come on, you, you, you should like rap on something. And, you know, Flying Lotus was like, nah, nah, man, I'm not a rapper. It's that, that's, that's something else. I'm, I'm good at what I'm good at. I'm not even going to like try to get into that world. And Earl's like, you must not know how easy this is with all of the tools and skills you already have. This is really, really easy. And it, it, you would do this with like no effort. Come with me. I'm going to a session right now. You can watch me rap. I'm just going to make some shit off the top of my head and it's going to work. And then you will see how easy it is. And that's what happened. And then based on that, they made this first Captain Murphy single, Earl Sweatshirt and Flying Lotus. I want to say it was called Between Friends. And it came out on mm-hmm. one of those incredible Adult Swim singles program things. And uh, man, I love those. Like, Adult Swim is so good at curating music. I absolutely they adore really them. They really are. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was around the summer of 2012 when that um, Adult Swim compilation was released. And that was, yeah, um, it was Captain Murphy, Between Friends, produced by Flying Lotus, and featuring Earl Sweatshirt. So when that first dropped... People were like, wait, 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 who's Captain Murphy? We know who Flying Lotus is. We know who Earl Sweatshirt is. Who's Captain Murphy? And so at that point, it was a secret. And people speculated a few things because Captain Murphy's voice is very treated. It's got like, it like changes pitch and shift and speed all the way throughout uh, all Captain Murphy songs. So some people thought it was Tyler, the creator, because it was right there with Earl Sweatshirt. Some people thought it was Mad Lib, because another one of the early Captain Murphy songs was produced by Mad Lib. And some people thought it was Flying Lotus, because in particular, if you look at the track listing for the first Captain Murphy album, half the tracks are produced by Flying Lotus. So people were like, come on, who has the clout to get half their album Mm -hmm. produced by Flying Lotus? No one but Flying Lotus. So, so anyways, that was the speculation. But then when the album was actually released on November 28th, Captain Murphy played his very first show. And then who walks oh, out wait, on wait. St- Oh, sorry, go before ahead. Before you get to that, before you get to that, mm-hmm. there was also the whole animated thing that oh, kind yes. of casts him as like, you know, uh, not a superhero, but like, yeah, he's masked kind of like unknown Right, Person. like like almost gorillas style, where like there's like a, yeah. a an animated avatar for the character of Captain Murphy who goes off and like does things, and yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a um, I think it was like a 32 minute animated special, yeah. a lot of loops, 34, yeah, yeah, really beautiful stuff, and yeah. it, it more or less debuted the actual album itself. So then, on, then the night that the album actually came out, which was November 28th, uh, Captain Murphy played a show at the Low End Theory, and what do you know? Flying Lotus walks out on stage and everyone's like, oh, I guess, I guess we know now. You know what I mean? Like it's so- But I think he was wearing like a mask or something. And at the end he revealed himself to be Flylo. I've seen footage of it and I wasn't there, but the footage I saw, it was basically like kind of like a cloak with like a big hood. And you could, oh, okay. you could pretty much see him the whole night. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. But it is true that he did like fully reveal himself at the end of the night. But, um, 
but yeah, like it, it, it was not very secret. And I think if, if I have any qualms with this project, I wish he would have kept up the alter ego a little bit longer. Cause basically, mm. yeah, on, on the day of, of his debut f- album, that's when he gave up the alter ego. It's like, man, you could have milked this for a while. <laughs> you know, you could have uh, put out a couple of albums under an alter ego before you revealed who you were, but maybe he just wasn't interested in that or something. He didn't want to pull a full MF doom, yeah. <laughs> a full it's Shabazz like Palaces. Wasn't, it's like, why feel the need? I know that there's like talk of him, uh, between him and his peers. Why... Why not just do a rap album as Flying Lotus? Right. Um, why come up with this whole other persona anyway? And I kind of feel him. Like, I feel like you can't just like, he's already built sort of an em- empire, um, if you want to call it that, for Flying Lotus. Right. He has this aesthetic that he follows and he does so well that a rap album doesn't necessarily it doesn't not fit with it, but I can see how he may want to separate the two. Yeah. Um, and then I also heard that he always wanted to get on like a mixtape or something, mm-hmm. but no one was calling him, putting him on their mixtapes. Um, but, but you know, so that, that's funny. Like he, they, they did put, it, it, they did call up Captain Murphy to get on some mixtapes though. Cause I, I, I yeah, know, yeah. I know he's <laughs> I on one say, of this is his mixtape too. Yeah. He, but yeah. Cause I know, for example, he does a guest spot on uh John Wayne's mixtape. I think it was cassette volume three. And then also I think he was on two other adult swim singles programs, one with MF doom. And I forget who the third one was with. But uh, but anyway, but but but, yeah, but you're right. That's funny that he had like this goal of like being considered a rapper and being called up to like go be an MC on other people's tracks, and he did mm-hmm. it. He he accomplished his yeah. goal. <laughs> and it's funny because everyone talked about how talented he was and stuff, and but they weren't putting him on the mixtapes until he did this. And the lyrics of that song between friends, which is the first song that right. I heard of this before. Because this is the first time that I've really listened to the whole thing all the way through. Mm-hmm. So thanks for the wreck. Yeah, yeah. But um, but I have heard this song. And when I go back and look at the lyrics, like the very first verse, he's like, first off, I'm going to start charging y'all per compliment. Uh, thanks for basically telling me that I have bars, but like not hiring me. Oh, wait. You get Before, he says, before you get you any get, further, I believe oh. that's Earl talking. Oh, is it? I believe that that is Earl Sweatshirt oh, talking man. in that first okay. part. It's it's hard to know. I can't tell. Totally. <laughs> because the vocals are... But still, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the message is the same from what his story is. Yes. And I, I have more thoughts on another check. But, oh, please, uh, please, I'll go hold. ahead. I mean, was there anything else you wanted to say about Between Friends? Um, I mean, uh, I love that there was a follow-up called Between Villains, and that was the one that he did, that he did with MF Doom. So it's almost like a sequel track, because um, MF Doom is just one of my heroes, and to me, just one of the best MCs ever, which uh, I believe we do need to do a top five MCs of all time, high fidelity yeah. list. That'll be fun. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I'll say in general that when it comes to hip-hop and rap writ large in like a big old like you know not not in like a micro sense but in like a macro sense i want my mcs to be able to produce their own beats like i think that's very important when it comes mm. to kind of blueprinting your own albums and blueprinting your own careers like it, like you know this is just my own personal preference but if you look at all of the best mcs 
they can make their own beats. And I'm not talking about like just my personal favorites. I'm talking about like all of the best. You know, when you're looking at a Kanye, you're looking at a Tyler the Creator, you're looking at an MF Doom, like pretty much anyone you list, you know, even even if you well anyway, I, I could go all day. But the the point is, I think it's really important because I, I saw this interview once with um ASAP Rocky where he was talking about how like how important it was to have a great producer in your corner because it really does create kind of like the 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 um the structure of your album. And if you lose that producer then you lose that sound. Because he was talking about Clams Casino and how grateful he was to be able to work with Clams Casino and have that mm-hmm. sound as part of the ASAP Rocky kind of like blueprint. And yeah, yeah, like let's say one day Clams Casino starts fighting with uh, ASAP Rocky, that sound is no longer a part of ASAP Rocky. He he can't claim it again. You know what I mean? So like, I don't know, like, like being able to do it for yourself and be in charge of your own beats feels very, very useful to me. And then... I, I, I could keep going about other stuff, but, but please, you go ahead. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Well, the standout track for me on this, I'm going to call it a mixtape. It's not. It's an EP, right? It's I mean, I, I think it's technically a mixtape. However, there is an LP, like a physical record you can buy, because um, he released a few like right at the moment when it launched. I tried to buy one. I couldn't get one when, when it first yeah. came out. And then um, every time I check to, uh, uh, to get a copy on Discogs, Oof. It's too expensive. I've never seen it less than 250. Um, the last time I checked, which was a while ago, it was over a thousand for a copy. Wow. And that's I think it crazy. just depends on, you know, who's selling what and how available it is at the moment. But um but I, I would call this a mixtape. I think this is officially a mixtape, okay. I think. Yeah. Yeah. The standout track for me on this mixtape, aside from Between Friends, which is the one I hear that I like, is Killing Joke. That's my favorite too. In that awkward moment when you see that I'm the joker too. <laughs> Underneath the chilling cloak, the killing joke. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's awesome. But like, not only is it just such a good song, but like the story line mm. and like the imagery. And if you know like where Killing Joke even comes from is, is big for me. Um, Killing Joke was a graphic novel by Alamo Comic Series. Turn it, well, maybe, no, I think it was a one shot, like, graphic novel by Alan Moore. It is the real story of the Joker. Right. Right. It's like how he came to be, societal pressures, psychology, like, what made the Joker the Joker? Um, he was a family man and now he's an evil guy, kind of a thing. That came out in 1988. And then, the lyrics, then you go, you you read the lyrics, and this is from verse two, and it says, I live my life like I'm Bruce Wayne in bittersweet pain. When you see what I've become, like a curse upon my name, caught between the fear and guilt, consequence of rising fame. Uh, I know the day my shit drops, my life will never be the same. He's talking about, I feel like there's this duality yeah. <laughs> of him being fly, fly low and Captain Murphy. Like me, I'm already kind of a legend, but like when I drop this, my shit's about to pop off and right. it kind of did, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, but also like Bruce Wayne and there's a duality of him being a like regular guy versus like the man behind the mask. Mm-hmm. There's that duality too. Um, and then I kept thinking... Even more, I think it's because I watched the video for this song and I had already like knew the reference of Killing Joke, but in the video it's animated and he's sort of presented as this like 
all black figure. Like you can't see his face at all, but you can see these white empty eyes and this mouth. It's like pointillated animated mouth, yeah. big lips, which kind of has like a Rorschach vibe, but not really, but it reminds me of Watchmen. Mm-hmm. So then I'm thinking, oh my gosh, Watchmen. Also, there's this like duality with Watchmen too, where Alan Moore wrote this one too, 86, 87, uh, was the like comic book series, but he wrote, so Alan Moore was saying that he wrote, um, you know, a, about a superhero that was found dead. It was basically like a superhero that was hired by the government basically. Um, and as the story sort of unravels, um, you are like led deeper and deeper into the real like superhero world, which shows that reality is so much different for the superhero than it is the public image of the superhero. Right. So there's that duality too for me with Captain Murphy versus Flylo. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, f- I fully agree. So I was just say like this song is so deep and I love it. No, no. <laughs> so and, many and, good references. And and the um the uh, the beat in the background too I I, I can't oh, describe yeah. it I don't because that too th- that's one problem I have with um, digital only um, releases is that I can't like pour through like the liner notes and see like if there was a sample or anything because it's just a yeah. beautiful beat. Um, uh, speaking of the beats, actually, uh, this album or mixtape, whatever you want to call it, was never officially released anywhere. My guess is because he didn't clear the samples. That's my guess. Um, but you can still find uh, downloads of it around on the internet, including, um, so yeah, there's a deluxe version of the album itself, and you'll be able to tell that it's the deluxe version because it has 15 tracks. But he also released the instrumentals-only version of the album, which Ooh. is basically almost just a new Flying Lotus album, you know? So um, that's really cool too. So uh, ch- check out both of those. Yeah. But, well, but, but I was going to say, you were talking about the beat. That sample is actually an Os Mutantes sample. Ah. Um, yeah, and I love the duality of that too because the song is very dark almost. Yeah. But that Os Mutantes song, Os Mutantes, because they speak Portuguese, Um that's so like uh what's her face from Os Mutanchis is is soft and beautiful, but it's called Ave Lucifer. Oh wow, um, that's cool. I mean because the song yeah. almost the song almost feels like it's crying. Like 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 the song feels like almost like it's lamenting something. And so that's the yeah, that that sample then, which which I, I assumed was a sample, but never knew. So thank you for telling me. Yeah. Um, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. That it, it's um, it's a beautiful song. It's very beautiful. Yeah. Well, so the the part that's that like sort of repeating part mm-hmm. says, "Mash tragem Lucifer pramim, but bring Lucifer to me." And then the next line is "Imma bandeja pramim." Something. Sorry, I'm not great at Portuguese, but on a tray to me, bring Lucifer on a tray to me. It just repeats over and over again. Wow, that's so cool. What is? That? Yeah. Man, oh man. <laughs> so Good stuff. So oh. good, so deep, and yeah. you can hear even the depth of his influences on on this too, like the the whole Jay Dilla, Madlib. oh yeah, it's which is like my favorite stuff. Oh for sure, yeah. No, I, I listen to a lot of rap, but I love the sample stuff like that. It sounds like you liked this album, which makes me very happy. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I'll, I'll say one more thing about it. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to say about this album? Nope, nope. Those are my main 
things. <laughs> um, the one more thing that I will say about this, that once again, I think it's because Flying Lotus is like the, the, the you know, the, the boss of this album. He's the main architect. So like I said, Flying Lotus produced half of the songs. Like I think he did, I think maybe six or seven of like the 15 tracks, but he had amazing collaborators. Uh, Sam mm-hmm. I Am produced one track. Tonight produced one track. Uh, Mad Lib, like I said. Uh, Just Blaze, Jeremiah J. He got Alejandro Jodorowsky to go and produce track one, which is astonishing. That dude, filmmaker, artist, Total, legend. Yeah, like his, that's the Doom guy, right? Yeah, Doom, he was he was going to do the original version of Dune. Yeah, that fell apart. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, um, I mean, wait, that that song is just, oh yeah, it is says produced, but like, it's not even a full song. So I wonder if that is originally his song that he's just sampled and rapped over. That's, here's my guess. And I don't know for sure because there's a lot of cult stuff all throughout the album. That's like kind of like yeah. the, um, like, uh, the, 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 the thread that kind of like weaves the whole album together is that um, mm-hmm. Heaven's Gate kind of like brainwashing material. If I remember correctly, and I'm not sure I do, cause it was a very brief moment in time when this album first released, all of the um, merch that you could buy to go along with it. They were these sweatshirts and t-shirts that didn't really say Captain Murphy anywhere. I think they just said cult member on them and they were really cool and I really wanted them, but they were really expensive and or sold out. (laughs) So that's what I remember. I'm not sure how it's just clicking for me that that like Lucifer song speaks to that whole religious cult theme. Yeah, it and could be. I didn't be. even connect it to because I was so focused on just sort of this like duality of like Flower versus Captain Murphy. Yeah. And like the whole Batman Watchmen thing. <laughs> but yeah, the, the cult stuff is deep and thick throughout this. There are many samples of like Heaven's Gate um, brainwashing mm-hmm. material throughout. And um, the track one, it just has like this repeating kind of like doom, boom, boom boom, 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 kind of thing going on. And then it's like uh, samples from that like cult stuff. And Mm -hmm. my assumption, like I said, because I don't have a physical copy of this, I've never been able to see the liner notes. I assume that Alejandro Jodorowsky made (laughs) that little like boom, boom, boom part. And then the sample is put on top of it by Flying Lotus. That's my guess. Yeah, so I I just I just pulled this up on my smartphone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Alejandro Jodorowsky, I think it's how you say. It, I don't know. Um, the mo- the El Topo translate to the mole, and Jodorowsky, this is a movie, uh, his movie, and he actually played the mole himself. Huh. So I'm thinking that the song that says he's produced it, it could just be that it's. Credited to His him. song, yeah. Yeah. But, but, but. From this movie, which is a acid avant garde Western spaghetti art <laughs> film. <laughs> Interesting. But this all ties into the point I was getting to, which was that because Flying Lotus was like the architect of this project, despite the fact that there are, oh, I don't know, I'm going to say eight, seven or eight different producers on this, it all feels extremely like tied together, coherent, like one solid sound. Like I, if someone told me before, and actually maybe this is the way I interpreted it the first time I heard it, that Flying Lotus just made all of the backing music and he produced the whole thing by himself. I'd go, yeah, of course. You know what I mean? Like 
everything flows perfectly. It's all in the same vein with one another. It's all got the same vibe. One track goes into the next, into the next, into the next. It's also pretty short. The whole thing, I think, is only like 35 yeah. minutes or something. 34 minutes, yeah. Same length as that animated thing yeah. he put yeah. out. And so like that really impresses me too. And I don't think you get that unless you have that producer mentality inside you already. That he was able to take these different tracks from different people put them in an order, you know, meld them together and, and, and make one big cohesive, coherent thing that sounds all, all like one big chunk, despite the fact that it is made by many people, but it all feels like one big Flying Lotus project. And so, I mean, come on, it's Flylo. He's, he's honestly, yeah. he's just one of the best alive, you know, he's great. Yeah. And this proves it. Yeah. But, but that's it for me. Um, anything else you want to say before we start uh, wrapping up and perhaps uh, putting something on the employee recommendation shelf? No, good choice, though. It was a fun one. And uh, man, like, uh, I, I, I love Album of the Month Club. We have good times. And yeah. I, I, I'm so surprised that so far we have not given each other an album that the other has heard yet. Like, that is shocking. I can't, I mean, it's going to happen eventually that we're, we're going to slip up, but... It's not sure. on purpose. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So, employee recommendation shelf. Uh, what are you going to put up this week? I am going to put up a grouper's new single, Unclean Mind. It is gorgeous. Um, not No surprise because I love everything she does. Yeah. Check it out. Grouper, Unclean Mind. I haven't Thank heard anything you. from this yet. Is this part of a new album or wh wh what's this coming from? I guess I hope so. I hope yeah. this is a sign that a new album is on its way, but it, it just came out, I think, um, yeah, uh, recently. Her name's uh, Liz Harris. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. No, she is amazing, but she always feels very mysterious to me. Like whenever I come across any project of hers, I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Let me find out more. And it's like, huh, there's nothing to find out. <laughs> like yeah. her music is usually pretty much the final project. And then there's no real explanation of where it came from or what she did with it. It's just like, nope, here it is. There you go. And it's like, oh, can, can I have an interview or something? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's interesting for sure. Cool. I'm going to have to check this out. Cause yeah, I, I, I've not heard this yet. Fun stuff. What are you going to recommend? Um, I, 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 This is quite the coincidence, but it actually ties into Betty Davis. Um, remember a while ago, I was telling you about how I was, this tied into that um, day that M. Sage came in here and uh, we were talking about documentaries and I started watching the uh, Ken Burns country documentary series. Mm -hmm. So in that, I've reached the point of Wanda Jackson. And oh, 
yeah. Yes. Whenever I reach, um, uh, I, I basically just take notes the whole time I'm watching this um, documentary series. And whenever I come across someone that I'm interested in, I'm like, all right, well, I'll, I'll pick up one of their albums, you know? And in many of these cases, like, it's really easy to pick up their whole discography just because they never, like, actually put out albums. Like, mm-hmm. um, I got the complete Marty Robbins for, like, 20 bucks. It was awesome. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyway. Wanda Jackson, uh, in particular, I came across this one compilation because she she has a fascinating career. If you don't know Wanda Jackson, the main thing I knew about her before was that kind of like Loretta Lynn, Jack White produced an album for her. That's that's like the majority of what I knew about her was that her and Jack White made an album together. That's it. Um, so here's the quick word from what I've learned from Ken Burns. So Wanda Jackson was really like country through and through. And then at a certain point, she just kind of started fucking around with this new sound and more or less created rockabilly. Like that's yeah. ba- basically what happened. And She's like the queen of rockabilly. Exactly. And so she had this kind of duality. Uh, see, we're tying it all together. <laughs> So much to the point that on tons of her singles, like the A side would be a country song and the B side would be a rockabilly song because she really did like just kind of like walk between these two worlds. So um, at first I found this compilation online called like her complete A's and B sides. And then when I was looking at reviews for it, it was so funny because half the reviewers were like, ugh, only disc one is good because disc one is all of her country stuff. And then someone else was like, ugh, only disc two is good because that's all of her rockabilly stuff. So depending upon like what which version of her you liked, you only liked one disc or the other. So I thought that was interesting. But I, anyway, I found this one particular one. I'm sure there are many great compilations for her, but the one I'm recommending because it's the one I bought and the one I'm really liking, it's called Wanda Jackson queen of rockabilly i never kissed a bear i never kissed a goo but i can shake a chicken in the middle of the room let's have a party let's have a party this is a uk import and um it's just really really good this one is a hundred percent her rockabilly stuff it's like 20 something tracks um it's just fantastic all on one disc uh, I've really been loving it. And she has that, the reason I say it's similar to Betty Davis, if you've never heard her before, she's got this wild voice. Mm-hmm. Just Raspy. so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Raspy, twangy. Funnel of Love, too, is the is the hit. Funnel of Love. Yes, that's a real good one. And um, but yeah, yeah she, she's got this voice that is just sort of like yowly, but like rough. Yowly. Like, <laughs> it's it's awesome. It's, it, it's a really beautiful voice and really interesting. And it really makes a lot of her songs. And so, uh, anyway, it reminded me of Betty Davis, but um, this is just coincidental. I've just been listening to Wanda Jackson separately, but this is all tying together. The duality of her uh, country and rockabilly, her wild voice with Betty Davis. Um, Anyway. So that's my recommendation. She was a little, wasn't she also a little bit controversial? She was. Too? And um, yeah. For lots of reasons, actually. Um, she had this one song. Um, I, I don't know all the details. Obviously, I wasn't alive. Uh, where she was singing about how she was a volcano and that she was blowing up cities in Japan. And this is like right after the oh, atomic bomb went shoot. off and stuff. And then what's yeah. funny is like, someone i think probably someone at her label was like don't put these out because i think she like lists specifically the two towns or the two cities that were blown up during world war ii oh no and then there's they were like don't put this out and then she was like no 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 it's it's part of the song and then 
the song was a huge hit in Japan. Isn't oh, that, that's so backwards. Isn't that wild? Like, I, this, I, I'm just saying, throwing the word allegedly over that whole story because <laughs> that's just something I read on the internet. But, um, but yeah, no, she was a controversial figure. And, and much like um, Dolly Parton, she had a yeah. lot of like songs where the subtext is fuck you. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's just that thing of like singing about the woman's perspective that would normally be from the dude's perspective. Like she had this one song on this album where, let's see, she's talking about how she cheated on her man. He found out and got mad and asked her not to do it again. But he was really, really attentive when when he like because she cheated so she's gonna do it again and she just laughed in his face when he asked her not to cheat again and like stuff like that it's like damn that's fucking powerful for like you know for this era yeah well and like dolly with her whole like boob thing yeah uh in the 80s and just sort of pushing this like idea of like image uh in a way that's like i don't know she wanted she was just trying to be herself. She yeah. was just trying to be herself. And, and and that's over the top a little bit sometimes. Um, but even Wanda Jackson had, she wore, like, I think the first time she was going to play the Grand Ole Opry, she wore, like, a spaghetti strap dress or something. I heard about that. And then, like, yeah. they, they didn't they, um, like, some people, like, asked her not to play or something yeah. like that? And they yeah. asked her to put a jacket on or something? Yeah. Yeah. And it's then like, I think then she made, like, a decision. She was like, I don't think I'm part of this crowd, you know? And perhaps... Well, and that became her signature look. Right. Her spaghetti strap dress with fringe on it. And so I think... I don't know. I think it's kind of cool that she and like Dolly have made these sort of these image things into their actual signature looks. Right. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. I, I, I definitely turn don't a negative know. into a positive. Oh yes, for sure. Or like own it, you know, like owning your owning like who you are and yeah. Cause yeah. Dolly has said many it. times that she wanted to look like trash. Like she wanted to be oh, yeah. like, yeah, like that was her look. She's like, Dolly says it takes a lot of money to look this cheap. Yeah, exactly. But uh, anyway, I, I don't know enough about Wanda Jackson. I've just started listening to her. But this was a really good starting place. It's yeah, a UK import. Cool. It's called Queen of Rockabilly. But I'm sure I'm sure there's lots of good stuff out there for her. Um, anyway, that's it from me. Anything else before cool. we uh, close up the store? No. Cool. Well, hey, everyone out there in this record store uh, listening to my voice right now. Y'all are the greatest. Um, thanks for coming by today. We really appreciate it. But the store is officially closed. Happy trails, everyone. Until we meet again. Record Store Society is hosted by Tara Davies and Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to contact the show, you can send an email to recordstoresociety at iheartmedia.com. Or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society. Record Store Society is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.